We have copies of the uh, outlines for tonight that Trey and Michael will make available to you if you'll raise your hand and didn't receive one. Is there anyone who needs a copy of the material this evening? A few, I noticed, the back on this side. You'll remember there's an account in the scriptures of the Old Covenant where God appeared to Moses out of the burning bush. And he said to him, Take off your shoes, for the ground on which you stand is holy. If those words are to be spoken with respect to the New Testament scriptures, I believe the passage we are to consider tonight would be precisely such a text. We are going to stand on holy ground, and I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. Some of you will remember that when we first looked at the structure of the Gospel of Mark, we saw that Mark tells the story of Jesus, and it falls into two almost equal halves, 1-1 through 8-30, 8-31 through 16-8. But when we come to 8-31, where Jesus suddenly begins to talk about what it costs to be God's Messiah, to be the one that is sensitive to the call of God upon his life, when he begins to talk about the cost of having a kingdom vision and embodying it, we come to a whole new orientation to the Gospel of Mark. I speak of the mystery of the suffering of the Messiah and of the people, and mystery is a correct term. Because to say Messiah was to conjure up hopes and dreams. That's so evident in the response of Peter when Jesus begins to define Messiahship in terms of suffering much, the rejection of many, of being killed, and being raised again on the third day. And Peter puts together two words that should never be brought together. No, Lord! I'm glad I'm speaking to a group of people tonight who have never done that. Who have never said no and Lord in the same breath. But there is a mystery to what it means to be the agent of God's salvation. And in Mark's gospel, we have already become aware of this. There is a quality of hiddenness in Jesus. And that quality will not be fully withdrawn until the morning of the resurrection. The tension between hiddenness and openness, between veiledness and open revelation of messianic glory, is inherent in what it be means to be the agent of God's salvation. But it is the same for the people of God. How is it? In so many places on the face of the earth, the martyr church is so much in evidence. Where men and women who seek to walk in obedience to the Lord, are treated as trash, violated, humiliated in every way, treated as the refuse of the world. There is a cost to being the people of God, and we're going to be exposed to it. That's why I say, we are on holy ground. I want to work through these sheets with you. 
And then I want to look more closely at two portions of this new unit and be more expansive. With 831, Mark gives an entirely new orientation to his gospel. And that change is defined by the explicit and new teaching concerning the necessity of Jesus' sufferings, and by a sharp change in tone and in pace. In 831, we find words that ought to be inscribed upon our hearts. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that is, the biblical scholars of the day, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Now you remember when we took up chapter 2-1 through 3-6, five conflicts in Galilee, that Jesus told a little parable. He said why life is like a wedding feast. If the bridegroom is in your midst, who can fast? There's the bridal table, and it's heaped up with good things. And you're invited to come and simply help yourself to whatever you see on the table. It's like a wedding supper. But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken out of their midst and then they will fast. We can, we who are Christians, we who know the fullness of the story, we can penetrate that. We know he was speaking about the sufferings and the death that the Messiah would endure. But it is covert. There is a hiddenness to it. And those who first heard it likely did not penetrate very fully what Jesus was saying. But now he speaks explicitly. He speaks openly. There is nothing parabolic about what he has to say. He spoke plainly about this. Now, Jesus' prophecy of his rejection, and incidentally, I hope you recognize that the words be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law is a reference to the great Sanhedrin. For those were the three groups out of which the great Sanhedrin, the great court in Jerusalem, were made, was made. There were in it the elders among the people. There were the chief priests. There were the finest of the biblical scholars. Jesus is saying, and be rejected by the great Sanhedrin. So his prophecy of rejection and suffering is his response to Peter's confession of faith. You are the Messiah. And it's important for you and I to recognize while Peter's words were correct in and of themselves, his conception of what it meant to say Messiah was wrong. And the explanation for the surprise we found last week, that Mark 8.30 tells us Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him was because Messiah was a fluid term. And a fluid will take many different shapes. It'll take the shape of the container into which it is poured. And so Messiah took a variety of shapes, but almost all of them were conditioned by the fact that glory was attached to the name Messiah. The star that arises out of Judah, the one who is the morning star, the one who has the beauty of the lilies of the valley, the one who is the king, the anointed one, 
glory. No wonder Peter thought that he was saying the right words with the right meaning. And yet Jesus warns them not to tell anyone who he is because he knows the conception that they have is not God's conception. And that's why Jesus begins to define what it means for him to be the Messiah. Now, this new section we have entered in, 831 through 1052, is dominated and structured by that solemn pronouncement in 831, which is repeated twice more. Notice it in 931. He was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. You find it again a third time. In chapter 10, verse 33 and 34, We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, those three cardinal announcements of Jesus' forthcoming humiliation furnish the framework, determine the tone and the subject of 831 through 1052. Now, point four needs to be inscribed upon our hearts. The primary purpose of this central section in the Gospel of Mark is to explain what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah and what it requires to be identified with him. The announcement of 831 signals a change of pace. As the story is told in the first half of the gospel, there is a leisurely and a meandering quality to the narration. Jesus is very much alive. He strolls unhurriedly through the villages and the back roads of Galilee and the region to the north. But with the announcement of his forthcoming death, the pace and the direction all changes. Now he heads straight for Jerusalem. And over and over again, you find the note, he was on the way. For example, in chapter 9 and verse 30, we read that... They left that place and they passed through Galilee. 9.33, they came, came to Capernaum. In chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan, that is, Perea. In 10.17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. And finally, the direction, the destination, the goal of his traveling is announced in 1032 and 33. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem. The mood definitely changes. Three times, Jesus is explicit that he's going to suffer and be killed and rise again. Now, the meaning of the journey to Jerusalem is defined by those repeated announcements of Jesus' passion. He goes to Jerusalem to fulfill 
his messianic destiny. He leads his disciples in the way of the cross by instructing them concerning the necessity of his sufferings and of the requirement that this imposes upon them. The three cardinal announcements constitute the first of three movements in a programmatic pattern that brings us into the heart of Mark's gospel. Surely the confession of Peter in 829 was a moment, a high moment, of revelation and insight. Nevertheless, the disciples failed to understand the significance of Jesus' messiahship, and Mark underscores their failure after each of Jesus' affirmations of his rejection and humiliation. We know that following the announcement at 831 and the fact that in 32 he spoke openly of this matter, that we read, Peter rebuked him. In the case of the second announcement, the disciples clearly did not understand. They were afraid to ask, and they argued about who among them was greater. For we read in chapter 9 and verse 32, the explicit words, they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? And they are strangely silent, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. And when you come to that second announcement, in chapter 10, 33, 34, why we read that Jesus was striding toward Jerusalem, and you can almost see him going, and he just doesn't look back. Luke will tell us he set his face like a flint. He just went. And those who follow him, the twelve, are filled with alarm, and they are filled with fear. And after Jesus is as explicit as he becomes in any of the announcements, James and John, the fishermen sons of Zebedee, come to Jesus, who has just spoken about being condemned to death, turned over to the Gentiles who care nothing about a Jew, and how they will spit upon him how they will strike him, how they will put him to death. And then on the third day, he will be raised once more. Jesus says, talking about abject humiliation. And James and John come and say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I'm reminded of our children when they were small. Dad, I want you to promise you're going to do what I'm going to ask, but don't ask me what it is yet. You just promise you're going to do it. Well, you learn as a parent very quickly, you don't make those kinds of promises. That usually proves to be rather costly. But they talk, and Jesus very gently leads them to share with him their thoughts, he said, what did you have in mind? That when you come into your glory, he had talked about humiliation, they talk about glory. And we read that the other ten were indignant. Were they indignant because James and John were so insensitive to all that Jesus had said? How could you have been so thick-headed? Didn't you hear what he said? No, not at all. They were indignant because they wanted the chief seats for themselves, 
and James and John had beat them to the punch. And we chuckle, but I suspect if we had been there, we would have been in that indignant company as well. It's clear that there was misunderstanding. And on each occasion, Jesus calls the twelve to authentic discipleship that involves humility. Not humiliation, humility. Saying no to yourself. That involves sacrifice. That involves service. That involves suffering. You see, just as there is a cost for Jesus to be the agent of God's salvation, there is a cost to following Jesus. Now, the parallel themes of Jesus' suffering in fulfillment of the will of God, misunderstanding, and the call to true discipleship exhibit emphases Mark regarded as so essential to his community that he made them the core of his gospel. And if he regarded them as essential for the men and women of his day, do you think they are less than essential for you and for me? what it means to be the Messiah and what it requires to be identified with Jesus. Finally, nine. Jesus' rejection and violent death on the cross underscores the element of hiddenness in Jesus' messianic self-revelation in the Gospel of Mark. The secret that the kingdom of God has drawn near in the person of Jesus is thoroughly veiled when he hangs upon the tree. The assurance that he will be raised by God on the third day, the assurance of Jesus' resurrection, points beyond the hiddenness to Jesus Revelation glory. Mark exposes for us the tension that cannot be resolved between hiddenness and open revelation of glory which is built into the heart of the gospel through the reaction of the disciples to the sober teaching found throughout 831 through 10.52. Now, with that overview, I want to look more closely at two dramatic accounts. Let's begin with the one that's found in 8.31. I'll read 31 through 34. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, in other words, when he saw the disciples he did something for their sake, for our sake. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then he called the crowd to him, along with the disciples, and said, if anyone would come after me, a formulation which means, if anyone would be my disciple. For it's the disciple that leaves all other claims upon his life to follow his master, 
to be instructed by Him, to be identified with Him, to serve Him, to be matured through Him. If anyone would be my disciple, he must deny the self and take up the cross and follow me. Now, I spoke about this being a passage in which it would be proper for us to take off our shoes because we stand on holy ground. That portion of Mark's gospel brings us into the company of Jesus as he makes his way toward Jerusalem. He had gone up to the north, to Caesarea Philippi, near the Syrian border, but the ultimate destination was Jerusalem. And Mark does not permit to us a spectator mentality. It isn't as if a film is to be projected upon the screen. You settle back and enjoy what follows. Mark won't permit this. There is no safe distance from which to observe what is transpiring. We are there when Jesus speaks with his disciples and when he speaks to the crowd. And we suddenly become aware that Jesus' words are addressed to us as well as to the twelve and to the crowd calling us to have an encounter with him. Now, we may not catch everything that has been said, but we cannot fail to catch the intention that the evangelist has for each one of us. And if someone were to ask us to summarize what this account is all about, we could do it in two words. Get serious. Get serious. Now, this unit of the gospel leads us into the very center of Mark's message. We find Jesus completely committed to doing the will of God. For behind the term must, in date 31, the Son of Man must suffer many things must be rejected, must be killed, and after three days rise again, behind that term must stands the sovereign will of God. We find Jesus completely committed to doing the will of God. We see the disciples displaying the most gross misunderstanding, and we hear the call to genuine service, to genuine discipleship. We hear the call to a committed following of the person of Jesus. Now that raises some pointed questions for us this evening. We're for us in our situation, as a congregation within this community, and a congregation that then becomes the church scattered as we return to Brentwood, to Nashville, to Murfreesboro, to all of the areas from which we come. What does it mean to be a company of men and women and young people who are committed to following Jesus? What is God saying about the subject of biblical discipleship this evening. The disciple is one who is taught. What is God teaching us? What is the cost of serving the king and of having a kingdom vision? Mark's response is get serious. I find here a word for me. I find here a word for our pastors. 
I find here a word for church leaders and elders. And I find here a word for you. Now, you remember the excitement of Christian confession. There is an exhilaration in Peter when he responds for the twelve, you are the Messiah. A genuine exhilaration. But that exhilaration quickly disappears when Christian confession is set in the context of suffering, rejection, and death. You see, the one that we confess as our Lord was ultimately serious about doing the will of God. And Jesus appears as the suffering, rejected, dying Son of Man. Now, do you know what Son of Man means in Scripture? Why, well, think of Daniel seven thirteen and 14. Daniel has had a vision in that seventh chapter of the book of Daniel that has involved great beasts, monsters, if you please. But the last part of the vision, he sees one like a person, one like a son of man. And he comes on the clouds into the presence of the Ancient of Days, and he receives a kingdom that will never pass away. To say son of man is to say something glorious. And here Jesus brings son of man into the context of suffering much, of being completely rejected, of being put to death, and depending upon God for vindication through resurrection. Do you feel the tension? Jesus was serious about doing the will of God. Now when Jesus calls the twelve and the crowd, and begins to define for them what discipleship is all about. He says, you must feel the weight of the cross. And here it's time for us to mature, to grow up, to move beyond so many of the artistic examples we have seen of Jesus in the act of cross-bearing. He normally is printed even on the stations of the cross, that were so meaningful in Michael's life when he was growing up within the Roman Catholic Church as bearing the full cross and falling under the weight of the full cross. But that's not an historically accurate picture. You see, the upright was already in its place on Golgotha. What Jesus carried was not the whole cross. What he carried was a heavy wooden beam, the trans cross, if you please, to which the man condemned to die would be tied with ropes or nailed with iron nails. And he was forced to carry it on his shoulders as they wove him in and out of the most traversed streets in Jerusalem to be treated as an outcast and led up to Golgotha where the crucifixion would be completed. When Jesus says, if anyone would be my disciple, let that person say no to the self. Let him take up the cross he is talking about a heavy wooden beam that you carry with two hands upon your shoulders. Only in Jesus' case, those shoulders had been torn by a Roman flogging. No wonder he fell under the weight of the cross. Michael is one who has been interested in old barns and cabins. 
And my guess is, if discipleship ever becomes a matter of ho-hum with you, you might talk with Michael. Would you let me come up to your barn and spend an hour carrying a heavy beam on my shoulders? That's what Jesus was talking about. You must feel the weight of the cross. Now, how shameful we have been. We have treated the word about cross-bearing as if it were a metaphor. Why, I work in a situation, and I work with all of my strength, and my boss never recognizes me. In fact, he seems to disparage me. But that must be my cross. Or it's so difficult for my wife and I. Her mother has come to live with us, and she constantly complains. And there isn't anything we can do to make her happy, but that must be our cross. We treat it as a metaphor. You have to know that cross-bearing was so horrific a reality in the Jewish situation under Roman occupation in all of the pages of the Talmud which would fill up some 36 volumes in the library we're building, you will not find one metaphorical use of the cross. And Jesus wasn't speaking in metaphors. For us to treat this as if it were a metaphor is to trivialize what Jesus was saying. In the Sudan... While we meet in this Bible study now, there are pastors and their families that are hunted down and are literally placed on the cross in order to intimidate the Christians, in order to seek to destroy the church. And it has happened throughout history in various places in the world. You must feel the weight of the cross. When I was a young Christian, and even a young prof, there was a very popular track that had been put together by Campus Crusade that had on its outside cover, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. What if you opened that track and there was one word written inside? Crucifixion. How many of us would have said yes to Jesus? And yet, that's what Jesus is talking about. And when Mark wrote his gospel, the cross had become reality in the life of Jesus. It had become reality in Mark's mentor, Peter. And it had become reality in many of the men and women for whom Mark cared desperately. See how easy it is for us to become spectators, to settle back, to look up on the screen and to enjoy what we're hearing, what we're seeing. We belong to a great church, abundant teaching, wonderful opportunities for collegians and for young people and for children, care groups, cell groups, parishes. Oh, it's a wonderful place to be. And we settle back. And we become the spectators, and Jesus says, if you really want to bear the name disciple, you've got to say no to yourself, even as I had to say no to every ambition, every claim that I might have had upon my own life, that I might say yes to God and yes to you. Do we really understand that? That's what this first account is all about. Turn to chapter 10, 32 to 34. 
where Jesus repeats the cardinal announcement, only now it is fleshed out. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. And I shudder, knowing that under the category of the teachers of the law, there you find me, a biblical scholar. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and three days later he will rise. Many of you are of the generation that will remember Superstar. It was a remarkable rock opera that sought to put in a time of the anti-hero the story of the gospel, where the strongest voice was assigned not to Jesus, but to Judas. And there are some remarkable, some remarkable insights in Superstar. Weber and Rice were the lyricists and the musician that put it together. I remember when Jesus appears before Herod Antipas, Pilate, having sought to befriend Herod and allowing him to judge a Galilean because Herod was the governor of Galilee. And Luke tells us that Herod wanted to see Jesus perform a miracle. And Weber does it very nicely. Herod sings, show me. I'm no fool, walk across my swimming pool. You'll remember. Now what Superstar was remarkable in doing was as far as I know in the whole history of music, it was the first time that anyone sought musically to render the flagellation of Jesus. Now, at many points, Weber and Rice had had good counsel, and they did their homework, and there were certain notes of real and genuine accuracy in what they had to say. But in this case, there is a very powerful part of Superstar where the trumpets race up and down the scale, and you hear in the background, one, two, three, Four, all the way to 39. Now, 39 strokes with a whip, that was a Jewish flagellation. They knew that 40 would cripple a person, and so they took away one in honor of the mercy of God. But in a Roman flagellation, there was no limit to the number of strokes that you inflicted upon the bare back or chest of a man. The only rule was you flagellated him, you scourged him until his entrails hung down. It was horrific. Mark uses they scourged him he uses a verb that comes out of the Latin for flagellum, that bone-tipped or iron-tipped, multi-stranded whip that was like a claw that raked down the bare back or the bare chest of Jesus. Josephus tells us he had had three of his political enemies scourged, and all three died on the spot. Jesus says the Son of Man will be scourged. It's clear when he speaks we're in the midst of a time of crisis. And the shocking detail of Mark 10, 32 to 45 is we find ourselves at the same time in the presence of gross selfishness. James and John come 
and they say, in a way we can scarcely understand, when you come into your glory, we want the chief seats, the place on the right, the place on the left. Now, how could they have done this? Because they were so much like you and me. We hear selectively, and when we come into the presence of something that is painful, we can tune it out. They heard we're going up to Jerusalem, and they stopped listening. Jerusalem was the city of the great gate. He's going up to be crowned. We'd better get our requests in. When he is crowned and every eye is upon him, let those eyes take in one of us on the right, one of us on the left as well. The other ten were indignant. In that context, Jesus speaks of the shared cup and the servant's role. Very briefly, he asked James and John, Are you able to drink from my cup? Are you able to be baptized with my baptism? If you have seen Fiddler on the Roof, if you have seen the film Yentl, if you have ever tended an Orthodox Jewish wedding, you know that the high point in the wedding is where the bride and the groom drink from a single cup of wine. And then the groom takes and wraps the cup in a napkin, puts it on the floor, smashes it with his heel, and everybody present cheers! Why? Because in Judaism, to drink from one cup was to pledge a common destiny. And in smashing the cup, he makes it impossible for anyone else to drink from that cup. Jesus says, Son of man means Jesus of Nazareth. Does it mean James and John as well? Does it mean Bill and Mike? Does it mean Brenda and Edie? how easily they say, we're able to do that. And Jesus said, you will drink from my cup. You will be baptized with my baptism. What was so special about that? All of us have seen baptisms by immersion. You have to know in the first century, baptism was like something you and I have never seen. The person to be baptized, normally a Gentile who wants to be identified with the people of God, goes into the baptismal pool. The men of the congregation, if it's a man, gather around him. If it's a woman, the women of the congregation gather around here and they ask three questions. Do you know what you're doing? Do you understand you are going to leave a people who are respected in the world and identify yourself with a people who are treated with contempt in the world? Do you know you will die to an old way of life and you will be born anew to a new way of life? And if the person to be baptized answered yes to all three questions, that person would then plunge himself, herself, underneath the waters. Baptism was self-administered. That it might never be said, this was something that was done to me. No, I did this to myself. It is an act of absolute committal. Are you able to drink from Jesus' cup? Are you able to be baptized with his baptism? Do you understand the call, the claim of God upon your life? And as for the servant's role, Jesus said even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom in exchange for the many, a term that means the redeemed community. Leadership is inversed in the kingdom of God. 
I often laugh when I think of how we handle the matter of leadership in the contemporary church. If we needed a new senior pastor, why, there would be an elaborate search. Some of the most gifted men in the denomination would fill this pulpit. The elders would meet. The call would come to a specific individual. But I dare say we would never go to the janitor and say, you have served us. Offer yourself for the call of God on your life to give leadership to the congregation. But Jesus says, the one who would be first must be the bond slave of everyone else. What an inversion of values. Do you begin to see why I speak of the mystery of the sufferings of the Messiah and of the people of God? Do you understand there is no room for a spectator mentality as you stand before the words of Jesus? Do you understand discipleship is costly? What does it cost you? What does it cost me? Do you know what my boast is? I have been able to teach the Word of God my whole adult life and I have loved every moment of it. No person could ask for a finer privilege than I've been given. Now, there are times when it has been costly, but they're relatively rare. But I have no guarantee that will be your experience. No guarantee that Mark and David and Luke will be exempted from the harshness of the cost of following Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we have stood on holy ground. We ask, O Lord, that you will seal to our hearts what Jesus has said that we will understand what it means for him to be the Messiah, the Christ, and what it requires of us. Forgive us for being so comfortable in the presence of giftedness and not recognizing the giftedness you have wrapped within each one of us for ministry. Forgive us our spectator mentality. Take us up and thrust us in the midst of ministry to the praise and the glory of the Lord Jesus, whom you vindicated in all that he said, in all that he did, through the resurrection from the dead. We pray earnestly in his name.